Hi, I'm Xander Wilson and welcome to The Silver Bullet, a brand new podcast from Media and Capital Partners. This podcast will feature disruptors from all across the Australian business landscape. We'll chat with ASX-listed company leaders to startup founders finding their way and all sorts of business leaders and innovative thinkers in between to uncover what they're doing differently and discover their silver bullet for success. On today's episode, I'm chatting with a business CEO who has grown his music-focused publishing business into one of Australia's largest. Luke Gerges is the Chief Executive of The Bragg Media. Luke, thanks so much for joining me today and good to chat to you again. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm pumped to be part of Silver Bullet. Now, before we get on to the Bragg Media, which I, I, I really want to go into, I want to touch on something I'm not sure you and I have spoken about much before, and that's how you got started in the music and entertainment business in the first place. Yeah, I started managing, oh, actually, if you go all the way back, I was a, I was a failed worldwide rap star. Um, I actually uh, started as a rapper and then worked, quickly worked out I was not very good at it. Um, pulled the pin on that, but but um, started managing a bunch of my friends who were rappers at the time um, and, and found that I was quite good at marketing and quite good at sort of business development. Um, and so we had a lot of success with some of those early artists. And then um, then after that, I worked at a record label. And that was actually where I got the idea for the Bragg Media because um, I worked out how mu- I, I discovered how much we were spending on publishers marketing records and I thought that, you know, potentially if we acquired some of these publishers for kind of a year and a half's worth of marketing spend at these publishers, that we could run these businesses like we managed, I managed bands and then turn them into profitable assets themselves, but then also have these assets that we could market artists through for free. So that was the original idea at the record label. I actually put a whole business case together um, for the uh, boss at the label and, she thought it was a fucking stupid idea, um, and I so I left and, and and was able to do it myself. And you know what? In hindsight, it kind of was a fucking stupid idea, but I, I I've loved every minute of it, and it's worked out. So um, yeah, it's take the good with the bad. Yeah, sure. And that's interesting. Jumping into that already, sort of, I was going to ask you what what were sort of the gaps you're identifying in the market when when you look to start up the Bragg Media, or I think it was Seventh Street Media as the company to start with. So that was the main thing. It was just something that wasn't being done before, and you thought, you know, this is something that will be successful. How did you how did you see it panning out? How, how did you go sort of mapping out something that you couldn't, you know, look and see it had been done before? It was something that was completely new. Well, I'll tell you, like when I was managing bands, I was really good at extracting a lot of um, commercial partnerships with brands to the talent I was managing. Um, that was probably my the thing I was best at as a talent manager. Um, and I was managing this boy band at the time who was just like, they were on a rocket ship. They had this enormous online following. They were in the top 10 in five different countries around the world. Um, there was this, this sort of boy band pop group. It was, it was just exploding. And it was, was, I don't know, maybe seven, eight years ago. It was when BuzzFeed were at the peak of their powers. That was sort of the biggest online publisher at the time. The, the kind of the, the, the publisher that was, you know, uh, everyone thought was going to be the future. Um, and, you know, I remember them writing about our band, uh, uh, the fir- for the first time um, and I was like yeah guys we got on BuzzFeed this is going to be awesome like and I'm very very data driven I always look at all of our metrics ticket sales streaming numbers social followers like I really get into the analytics and I and I always try to match attribution of activity to those kind of conversions 
And then when BuzzFeed wrote about us, which at the time I thought was the biggest thing in the world, um, we didn't see one dial move, like not one even little little change in our metrics. I didn't see any conversion whatsoever. And so I was like, oh, all right. Well, obviously BuzzFeed's audience didn't, um, BuzzFeed's audience obviously didn't uh, like, you know, resonate with our band. We probably burnt the BuzzFeed bridge down. They're probably not going to write us about it again, but oh, well, whatever. That was, that was, that is what it is. But then something kind of peculiar happened in that they wrote about us the next week. And then again, they wrote about us the week after that, both three times in a row we were written about and we didn't see any kind of move on the metrics. And I was so, I was really curious then. And, and then I kind of discovered that, you know, although this is not the case with BuzzFeed now, and it's not a commentary on, on any, on any other sort of like, you know, broader sweeping things that our peers, I guess what I discovered is there was a large pocket of strategy with some of these publishers and certain writers within these publishers that weren't there to add value to the, to the bands they're writing about, the brands they're writing about, the, the topics they're writing about, but they're actually just sort of extracting value. So I felt that the writers who were writing about our bands at that time were actually just pulling our fans' traffic to their sites and not actually, you know, giving their, like moving their readers to us. And so that really um, opened my eyes about how the publishing business was working at that time eight years ago. And I was like, well, if all they're doing is extracting value, then how could they possibly be giving value to brands and so, and, and, and artists, you know, if you're going to run campaigns with them as well. So I, I was like, okay, I wonder, I wonder then if we were able to acquire one one or two of these publishers and operate them like they are a band, i.e. they have their own fan base. They have people that depend on them. They have people that, that love the brand and love what they do. Um, if then we can do it differently and then actually offer value back to artists and back to brands and back to whoever we want to champion or work with or whatever. Um, so again, it became the lens of can you run a publisher like it's an artist instead of like it's a media company? And that's kind of how I was thinking about it. And that's that's where I saw the gap in the market. Yeah, definitely. And do you think that problem still exists in terms of publishers for advertisers and cut through, I guess, particularly at a time when, you know, there isn't really a, a universally, you know, a universally used or standardized metric for measuring audience, you know, pe- people quite often quote their own numbers in their own marketing decks. But, you know, we used to have the standard or what was it, the standard media index and, and, and Nielsen releasing these numbers. And we don't really see that anymore, except for maybe the occasional Roy Morgan survey. Yeah, I think the, the, the nuances in like reporting um, different audience numbers and things like that is kind of a symptom to the problem. Um, I see a very different core problem now with publishers than, than there was sort of eight years ago when I was managing bands. Um, we at the Bragg Media believe our job is to inspire, not divide. We want to inspire our readers. We want to bring our readers together. We want to get around their passion points. What I feel the real problem right now with publishers is that they're very, very divisive intentionally. So you will get a publisher. I, I, I sometimes think about some other publishers and what their newsroom might be because we will see a story and we will talk about it, whether it's in person or in our Slack channels or whatever, and we will try to find the – we will either just report straight up and down facts and let our readers decide how they think and feel about it or we will look for the opportunity to, to unify the audience and, and sort of inspire them or bring them together around the positives of it or whatever. 
I actually think that some of these are some other publishers sit around and they go, how can we be offended today? Or something's happened. How does this offend me? And then they really lean into the absolute divisive side to every single new story. Um, there is a there is a, a real cardinal sin which I believe is really bad for society that, it, that some extreme publishers do, where someone some influencer or, or celebrity or someone will post a bit of content and then they will trawl through you know, tens of thousands of comments and find the two that are offended about it or upset about whatever piece of content was posted in the sea of positive responses. And then they will run a headline, of, you know, fans backlash against X over Y. And, and it just like really puts the thumb into absolute divisive, um, dividing our, our nation um, and amplifying the most extreme views and the most extreme reactions. Um, that to me is, um, is a real um, is a real sin of our industry, I think. Um, it, and I understand why it happens because it's very effective for traffic driving. Um, but my my view is that 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 sort of values short term profits, i.e., the short term traffic you'll get on that article over long term equity. Um, you know, these masterheads are losing their value every every single year. The more that they do that, um, we believe that as a publisher. Um, not only is it better for society if we focus on inspiring and not dividing, but we actually think it's going to be long-term better for, for our, you know, for our brand and our equity because um, our masterheads will 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 live longer and and uh, and be more respected and be uh, more fondly received than if all you're doing is trying to divide your public and um, and show show your audience how offended you are about everything that happens. Yeah, and that, that ties into something that we've spoken about previously. But um, you know, you see, you see a lot of these mastheads, especially ma- through the mainstream media, uh, cutting back on their on their print offering. You guys obviously started uh, restarted the Australian version of Rolling Stone recently. I think we spoke about it last year. But but how's how's that going? Um, how are advertisers receiving it, and 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 how are, how are your readers receiving it? Uh, it's actually. It's actually been going really good. I think our numbers are up to two hundred thousand readers now. Um, on the last Roy Morgan audit, um, which is growing every time a new audit comes out, which is fantastic. Um, we're at a really strange challenge right now because of with all this these inflation numbers, our costs have ballooned out. Um, so what it means is that we actually can't sell as many ads as we'd like because. We now have a we, we have a very thick magazine. We 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 strive to be more of a coffee coffee table book than a magazine. But even with that mo, there is a limit on the amount of pages we can do because of just simply just freight costs are just insane now. So we have to limit it to a certain number of pages. I can't remember what that is, which means that you know we we you know previously it was like we book more ads, we print we we just make the magazine thicker, whereas we can't do that anymore. So um, you know it's it's. It's uh, it's just an interesting challenge now, and how much of the magazine is going to be editorial versus versus ads, and you know the the print side for us is not our main commercial driver, so we're always going to be um, we're always going to bias the audience experience over the advertiser revenue because you know the the material revenue that comes from us is our events and our digital, not not our magazine. So so the magazine lives in a different space but it is an interesting channel ch- challenge now with all these freight costs and increasing paper costs and stuff like that that we're kind of you know we're we're trying to balance now and figure out 
Yeah, and and the event side obviously has been something that's been able to come back a little bit. Um, would have been something that had been quite quite badly impacted by COVID. Um, how, how's it all getting people back? Are, are, are they being received well for these events and that sort of thing? How 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 is it going? Getting sponsors on board? Is everyone pretty pretty keen to sponsor live events again? Uh, yeah, our, our events business is is pretty much the core um, our core growth. Um, our grow core growth path over the next two years and we've seen a huge um jump we've grown 200 percent year on year last two years in a row um and so that is literally down to our events business really really growing um strong um and on the on the so there's two parts of our events business there's obviously the events we there's three parts actually there's the events events we put on for ourselves like rolling stone awards we're doing one in sydney and one in new zealand this year there's the events that we put on our for our clients um so we, we put on events for you know Magnum and Lexus and Jim Beam and we got we, we do a lot of events for different brands and then we have um, the events that we market and promote. So you know we we market Splendor with Splendor in the Grass and Blues Fest and you know all these sort of big Australian festivals. Um, what we're finding is the events that we put on for ourselves and brands that's a really healthy strong business. Um, and the events that we're marketing for other promoters and festivals and stuff. Um, you know that that's still as it was sort of pre-COVID, but um, it's a huge challenge on uh, consumer confidence right now because if your festival or um, tour is kind of like a pretty good festival or a pretty good tour, it's fucking hard to sell tickets. You know, consumers are waiting for the last minute to buy tickets. Some people that buy tickets still aren't even showing up. There's just people that are just really out of the rhythm of buying tickets and still nervous things might get cancelled and things might get moved. Um, so it's it's really challenging for those promoters. But in saying that, if your tour is white hot, your festival is the best lineup we've seen in a decade, then that's still selling out in the blink of an eye. So um, yeah, it's uh it's just a it, things are going really strong, but that there is that nuance now where you know pretty good lineups and pretty good festivals are struggling. Um, you have to be incredible, or or it's or it's not gonna it's it's just slower to sell and, and higher risk. Yeah, and is is one of the challenges about that still getting international artists um, into Australia? You know, I, we saw you know all these homegrown lineups over sort of the last twelve to twenty four months, um, and even before that, I, I think I think a lot of the criticism around festival lineups in 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 Australia in particular was a bit of sameness. Is it still really challenging getting international acts to come over because we're still seeing cancellations, aren't we? Yeah, and that's and that's that's what's hurting consumer confidence. So it's not no longer a challenge to like book these artists and bring them out, uh, and, or get them to commit to being on the lineup and all of that. But you're seeing cancellations because of isolation issues, or illness, or weather, or whatever. You know, like so there's all these things that that can cause an artist, you know, to not come to Australia when they've been booked and paid to come. So um, that's what's scaring consumers at the moment. That's why they're not willing to fork out their their money to the last minute, but. I suspect that's going to change over the next six months and we'll get back to normal. It's just just a bit of a transition period right now. Yeah, and, and this is sort of a little bit of a side part to this, but reflecting on Splendor in the Grass this year, obviously a bit of a disaster. Um, how, how, how badly will that impact people and wanting to uh, buy tickets to festivals like that in the future? Is it something that people will get over pretty easily? or or and then And then I guess my other question about that is, um, 
what's we're already seeing issues of insurance uh, with festivals taking place over summer and that sort of thing. Where is weather insurance going to be the next big problem for festivals? It's a fucking massive problem. Like the insurance costs, I don't have the exact numbers, but I was talking to a promoter, um, so having dinner dinner with him, and he said that his insurance costs of three x or something. He's he's paying over half a million dollars for insurance now, um, and you can imagine when you were paying less than a hundred k, now you're paying five hundred k. That affects how good your lineup can be because that just eats into your margins. I mean, half a million dollars is is um, a really fucking good headliner, you know. So um, that's like that's a big problem for promoters' margins, which may impact on the quality of the lineup. Um, which may impact on how many consumers buy tickets. So it is a fucking big problem for sure. Um, I think it's all um, on the on the whole. Like you know, there was a huge hospitality shortage as well. I mean, forget Splendor for now. I mean that yes, I think they they really didn't have a choice about how they cancelled Friday. Uh, that was out of their hands. And then there were some other things that happened with the buses and stuff, which you know potentially could have been foreseen and. And, and was really, you know, put a lot of stress on, on, on their, uh, on their punters. And, you know, that, that th- there were issues for sure. Um, but, you know, there was also much broader industry issues, um, you know, with, uh, we just in the general hospitality industry, massive long bar lines at, 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 at the football stadiums and at the, and at the concerts and at, and at festivals, like there was real hospitality issues across, across the board. And I think, I don't know, like, this is a broader macroeconomic question. Is, is the hospitality industry going to recover? Um, I obviously think it will. How it happens, who knows? Um, but, but you know, over time, things are going to work out. The entertainment industry is um, pretty recession-proof. Uh, if you look over the last century, it's always kind of been able to survive recessions because people will cut everything in their budgets, um, but then you know, once they cut everything, they feel like they deserve to treat themselves and then they'll go out. So um, I think we're going to be okay. Um, And as long as people are going out, there'll always be jobs available. Um, And if there is a recession and God forbid unemployment goes up and, but people are still going out, well then the the hospitality industry is going to be able to hire those people. So um, I think all of this stuff will will work out. And I think we're probably at the peak, peak worst of it all uh, or we're coming out of it now so it's only going to get better and consumers will start to to realize that and things will things will be okay yeah definitely and just coming back to the publishing side of things um you guys obviously launched variety fairly recently we just wanted to know how that's going from 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 your end you know it's 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 obviously fantastic having a brand covering australian things like variety um how how are those other brands as well that you know you guys have brought on for for ad sales with the potential to launch in australia going as well yeah variety is um a public a, a brand that we are we hold with a great deal of respect and we're we're certainly not going to rush into the end game for it um it is the most iconic you know film entertainment brand in the world um we are the first publisher outside of america to do it um in an english-speaking country uh so we take the responsibility very seriously so this year we have you know there's a million people oh, it's about eight hundred thousand actually a- anywhere between eight hundred thousand to a million australians read variety every month it's in a hugely popular publisher in australia um but we're not rushing into just turning it into a juggernaut here. We want to make sure that we use, we're use we using this year 
as almost our test and learn year and our due diligence year and how we want to grow and how we want to turn Variety Australia, um, what we want Variety Australia to be. Um, and that, and that's because we just have such a lot of reverence to that brand. So, you know, uh, next year we're going to be looking, you know, we're looking about what our print strategy is going to be next year, what our event strategy is going to be next year, how our content strategy is going to evolve. Um, Jake and Poppy are doing an exceptional job, um, this year and Viv, um, you know, with our variety content and we're just working out, um, you know, as we ramp things up, what does that look like? Um, and they're the questions we're asking ourselves this year. And uh, we'll see that evolve over the next, you know, 12 to 24 months. And just looping back, I guess, on on the pandemic, obviously, you know, we've spoken about the impact of, of the pandemic on the music industry, on festivals in, in particular. Obviously, sort of revenue for bands, something that is so uh, tied up with touring and that sort of thing. Um and 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 sort of that has that flow on effect to you know when there's no tours there's less people advertising on on music media and that sort of thing how did you guys i guess ride that wave over the last couple of years and 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 sort of make it through yeah so that was a really dark time for us we um well i i sincerely didn't think we would make it um we at that point you know the live you know, promoting festivals and tours represented probably 50%, 60% of our revenue as a business. Yeah, yeah. Um, we lost just over a million dollars in three days of revenue in that, in that, you know, I can't remember what date it was in March, but when everything just locked down, literally had over a million dollars of signed revenue pulled. Um, and I had about maybe six months of cash in the bank uh, and I just couldn't see a way that we were going to make it past that. Um, so that was like a pretty stressful time. And I thought that was it for us. Um, we had about two, two or three hires coming on that, that very next week. Uh, and obviously I had the choice. I had the choice between, uh, canceling those hires and letting go of a lot of staff and just cutting down costs and turning that six months of runway into 12 months of runway, maybe 18 months of runway and literally just cockroaching that, that whole period and surviving it and seeing what happens, um, which I saw as living a slow death. Um, and we also saw like what our, you know, Bauer Media and, or, or our Media, I can't remember what they were at the time, closing down 40 titles and everyone, you know, BuzzFeed left the market, Vice left the market, 10 daily shut down. Like everyone was just closing down around us. Um, and I just like, you know, I guess I, I was thinking we either die a slow death or we, or we just have a huge bet and we just bet the farm and go hard and see if we can really capitalize on everyone closing down around us. Um, I had a call with our, so the person who was coming on the next week was Joel King, who is now a COO. And he was just coming on sort of like leading, a, a certain, like he had a, a, it wasn't really a defined role, but I he, he was MD of Evolve for many years um, and was 
in a, in a, in some way, a bit of a mentor to me, teaching me publishing. And, um, you know, he, he gave me a great deal of support when I started in the business, even as a competitor, he was, he was really helpful. And I got him to come on and, um, and he was just going to head up like sort of three or four salespeople and just sort of manage a manager team kind of part-time. And I called him and I was like, mate, I don't think you can start next week. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do here. We've lost all this money. Uh, business is going to shut down. Uh, probably. <laughs> I don't know what the play is. Um, and I was sort of like talking to him. I was like, look, we've, I've got a choice. Like we either just swing for the fences and go really hard. And you know what, if we're going to die, we die fast or we go to cockroach mode and like, let's just put everything on ice and I'll call you again in 12 months. And talking it through with him and we explored both options. Um, and my, you know, co-founder, uh, Sam Benjamin, who, who is a huge champion of our business has invested in us and, um, is the reason why we're still alive actually. But all, all three of us together were like, fuck it. Let's just, if we're going to die, let's die fast, but let's just, let's jump while everybody's lying down and let's really go for it. Um, so that's what we did. Um, Joel came on, he managed a team, um, Sam, uh, who is our sole, in, a sole investor and our co-founder and, you know, is a, you know, is, is, we just had huge faith. He was like, let's not cut anything. Let's not fire any staff. Let's fucking go hard. Um, and we just really did a big bet. And it was like the bet, the bet just came off because while everybody else was shutting down, we just, we were kind of the only ones playing, you know, we were the only ones in the game left. And so it felt that way for about three months, certainly not the case anymore, but for that three month period, it felt like we were the only ones alive. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it really worked for us. Our revenue actually, it, even though we'd lost a million dollars in the, that sort of three days during that period, by the end of the year, our revenue was flat year on year the year before. So we recovered all that money and was able to keep the same revenue that we had the year before in 2019. And then from 2020 to 2021, we grew 200%. So it was just a, uh, I don't know. I, I don't like people always like, you know, think it's a, it was a genius move to just have this huge bet and, and and jump while everybody else sort of like hid under the desk, but uh, I I just think it was a gamble that paid off. I, it's hard to take credit for it. It could have gone either way. It was really a coin, a toss of the coin, and we just went fuck it, and it worked. So I'm really blessed and grateful for that. Um, but that was yeah, that was that was a pretty hectic time in our business. Yeah, and obviously the proof is you know looking at the business now and seeing where you guys are. Um, you know it must be really satisfying to do that. Um, and sort of just before we we start to wrap up, I just wanted to touch on a few of the other things you're up to yourself as well. Um, tell me a bit about Lamp Post Capital to start with. What, what is it, and what are you guys doing? Uh, we're a very small fund. Um, the 500k uh, fund in in startups. I I, I started it with my um, a talent I manage, Simone Yatch. She's the biggest female STEM creator in the world. Um, well, uh, yeah, we, we're just investing in startups. So Simone, you know, on her YouTube channel and her socials, she gets a lot of startups come to her and ask her for marketing support and she runs a lot of campaigns with them. Obviously, us as Bragg Media, we have the same um, experience. And so we thought it was a really good opportunity that we get, it's, it's almost like deal flow. So startups come to us and ask us to advertise for them and help them drive um, new customers. And so we really get to see the best startups from the worst startups. Um, and we get a look at all of that. So that allows us to go, hey, look, we've been working with this company uh, 
I reckon we should actually invest in them. And that's kind of how we see it. We get the, we get this really unique um, experience and view on creator economy, media companies um, and B2B, B2C products. Sorry. Um, and so that's where we're investing. The, the fund came about, um, I simply with a hundred percent of the credit needs to go to Alexis Ohanian. Actually, he's our um, lead LP. Um, so Alexis Ohanian, for those who don't know, is the Reddit founder. He is married to Serena Williams, um, and he was in Melbourne for the tennis. Uh, and I, he's a huge fan of Simone. I had coffee with him, and he was the one that came up with the idea. He said, "Hey, why don't you and Simone start a fund, and I'll back it." Um, and let's see how you guys go. And so, you know, he start, he started this sort of Titans program, which we're a part of and hugely grateful for that opportunity. It's, it's a lot of fun. And I get to, I get to pretend to be a VC and it's, it's awesome. Um, and I, and I, and it's, uh, and we're working with some really great companies. So that, that's Lampost Capital. So if anyone listening, um, is looking for an investor, um, a strategic investor, cause we're obviously writing very small checks, angel size checks. Um, but we provide value outside of that. Please email me and send me your deck. Yeah, fun. And then, you know, if you guys keep going, we might be able to get you on on our VC Land podcast in the in the future. Um, and, and just to finish finish this podcast with a question that I'm going to ask every guest, what's your silver bullet for success? And and it doesn't need to be a practice that's even specifically related to business. It can be a mindset or, or a philosophy. It can be, as I mentioned to you before, going for a run before work and there's no right or wrong answer. So what, do you, what have you done differently you think that's allowed you to, you know, succeed over people who believe that if you just work hard every day, you'll be successful? Uh, this is probably a boring answer because um, it's quite commercial. But my my bullet for success, I think, is this thing that we established called the Bragg Bible. So prior to us having this, you know, culture document, which is what the Bragg Bible is, we had a very shambolic culture, I'd say. Um, a lot of different people had different expectations on what was required of them. Um, everyone was running their own races in different ways, all with the best intention, but we just weren't aligned as a business. Um, and so that, that, that unfortunately in our early days of the brag media created a lot of tension within our culture. Um, but what we did was we created this brag Bible document, um, which is something that is very explicit about the kind of person you need to be to work at the brag. Um, and it's very, what we do is we actually hire fire and promote people based on objectively how people demonstrate those values and those, those behaviors. And we literally review it every six months and we go, did you do X, Y, and Z? If you did, you get a bonus. If you don't, well, we have a conversation. Um, and what that has allowed us to do is just get everyone on the same page. And so for me, um, what it says, what, what, what I always think is just setting clear expectations if everybody has the same expectations it doesn't matter if that's kpis related behavior related work ethic related like whatever it is when people have the same expectations then performance 10x's because everyone's on the same page but but also than that like if somebody doesn't if somebody has clear expectations about what it's like to work in a company and they think that sounds fucking awful and doesn't suit their personality well then you you you're doing them a favor by not hiring somebody that will hate it, you know? So you're able to give, you're able to just, um, you're able to attract the people that will suit your culture and also, um, give people a heads up really, because there's really talented people. I would say that just don't fit with certain cultures, you know, there's some, there's some 
you know, people that I would, I would imagine I hugely respect and would be incredible, incredible workers, but just might not fit the way we work. Um, and so having a very clear expectation and a very clear cultural framework of your business, just, oh, it, it has 10x our business, like in terms of the way we've been efficient at execution, the, the, the enjoyment we're all getting at work because everyone's aligned and our, and our ROI, our results have been incredible. So, um, yeah, clearing, however you choose to do that is that's my silver bullet. Make sure everybody's expectations are aligned. Um, and we've done that through this thing called the Bragg Bible, which is our culture document, which everyone reads before they even come to an interview with us. Um, and that's what I would attribute to success for us anyway. Yeah, fantastic. Culture, obviously a really important thing. Well, Luke, thanks so much for taking the time to have a chat today. It's been really fun. Legend. Thanks so much, Xander.